The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Did you find it? Yes, under U.S. government. Now we need directions. Excuse me, sir. Can you direct me to the naval base in Alameda? It's where they keep the nuclear vessels. Nuclear vessels. Excuse us. Oh, excuse me. Uh, we are looking for nuclear vessels. Can you tell me where the naval base is in Alameda? We're, we're looking for nuke. Hello. We are looking for the nuclear vessels in Alameda. Could you tell me where? Can you, you help us? Please, we're looking for the naval base in Alameda. Could you tell me where the nuclear vessels are? No. Ooh, I don't know if I know the answer to that. I think it's across the bay. In Alameda. That's what I said. Alameda. Alameda. I know but that. But where is Alameda? The Iron Curtain. The arms race. Brinksmanship. Detente. The jargon of the Cold War and the nuclear age. Mathematical equations posed by Albert Einstein were proven by the Manhattan Project. The results of these equations became weapons, energy, and of course, entertainment. The stories that were produced as a result of the nuclear age have different themes depending on the culture that told them. The differences in how different cultures perceived the nuclear age is fascinating to look at when you look at the only two nations that have been involved in nuclear bombings during war, the United States and Japan. On this episode of ARC, I'm going to talk about some of the different stories involving nuclear power and how America's and Japan's stories show their different perspectives on the issue. Also, I'm going to give my review and commentary on the latest movie in a franchise that was the dawn of nuclear entertainment, Godzilla. The summer movie season is in full swing, and this is ARC. God bless television. To the movies, to good movies, to every possible kind. I am the danger. I am the one who knocks. Is that a hair gel? <coughs> Loud noises! There's no crying in baseball! That's not even a word! Game over, man. Game over. I'll be back. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! These are their stories. From now on, I order you watch more television than ever before. Welcome once again to Arts Review and Commentary. I'm your host, Omar Latiri, and the summer movie season is one of my favorite times of the year. If you're like me, then there's nothing quite like escaping the heat and humidity for a couple of hours in a dark theater and watch explosions and sh**. The season also means beach weather, so don't forget to get all of your summer needs by clicking on ARC's Amazon page. Visit artsreviewandcommentary.com and click on the Amazon button to find everything you need for the summer. Shopping Amazon through ARC helps this free show and all of your favorite podcasts on the Realm Network. Now then, Dimitri, you know how we've always talked about the possibility of something going wrong with the bomb. The bomb, Dimitri. The hydrogen bomb. Well, now, what happened is um, one of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little 
funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. Well, I'll tell you what he did. He ordered his planes to attack your country. Well, let me finish, Dimitri. 1964's Dr. Strangelove is considered one of the darkest comedies of all time. It portrays itself as a satire on the obstinate attitudes of the two major adversaries of the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union. Of course, being a Stanley Kubrick film, there's a lot of sexual innuendo thrown in for good measure. I mean, the opening credits are played over a mid-air refueling that is obviously airplane porn. But the Cold War during the 60s was an incredibly tense time. Dr. Strangelove was released less than a year and a half after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Think about that. The world was on the brink of nuclear war, and a little more than a year later, we have a movie openly mocking it. Satirists were a lot braver back then. Anyone who's ever heard of Tom Lehrer's song, Who's Next, knows what I'm talking about. France got the bomb, but don't you grieve, because they're on our side, I believe. China got the bomb, but have no fears. They can't wipe us out for at least five years. Who's next? But by and large, in Western entertainment, nuclear weapons weren't really focused as an end so much as a specter in the background. The Bond films are a perfect reflection of the changing attitudes during the Cold War. That's on comrade. You don't have it. I don't have it. <laughs> Even during the Reagan era, popular entertainment didn't focus much on nuclear weapons, with a few notable exceptions like the ABC TV movie The Day After. Prior to the Reagan era, the danger of the United States being bombed by the Soviet nuclear missiles was more of an existential threat than a real one because of the sheer distance between the two nations. I can see Russia from my house. <laughs> okay, not counting Alaska. But after the fall of Detente, the range of missiles had grown so that no place in the world, not even the Midwest United States, was invulnerable to nuclear attack. But still, the awesome destructive power of nuclear weapons is too tantalizing not to use in entertainment purposes. I got a nuke coming in. It's going to blow in less than a minute. And I know just where to put it. What if it doesn't pass us by? Let's retarget some ICBMs to blow it out of the sky. I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Fucking A. American entertainment of the nuclear age vacillates between reveling in the destructive power of nukes and warning of their dangers. Take this scene from Crimson Tide. No, I, I just think that in the nuclear world, true enemy can't be destroyed. Attention on deck. Von Clausewitz will now tell us exactly who the real enemy is. <laughs> <laughs> in my humble opinion, in the nuclear world, the true enemy is war itself. As philosophical as that scene is, it's still just lip service to how horrible the aftermath of a nuclear war can be. It was the United States that dropped the only nuclear bombs during war, and the effect for this country was the immediate surrender of the enemy and victory for America. The effects of America's use of nuclear weapons in wartime have been, by and large, positive. 
it cemented America's place as a superpower, and it gave us a superiority complex that still is with us. We are still riding on a high of that victory, and combined with American astronauts being the only ones to have walked on the moon, nothing, not even defeat in Vietnam, can convince us that we're anything less than the greatest civilization in history. But what about the civilization that had the bombs dropped on it? How would such a society handle that? The achievements of Japan, reflected in modern pop culture, has much more of an impact when you realize that Japan, as a result of having two cities destroyed by nuclear weapons, is literally a post-apocalyptic country. That is not an exaggeration. Especially in anime, when a story takes place in a post-apocalyptic future, for Japan, it might just as well be called the future. In Japanese popular entertainment, the nuclear age has always presented itself as an ever-present danger that could manifest itself in horrible, mutated ways. Radiation and mutation play an integral part in many of the Japanese sci-fi stories. One of my favorite anime films is Akira, which deals with mutated children whose psionic powers bring about death and destruction. That the movie begins and ends with nuclear-like detonations carries more meaning when you factor in Japan's history with mass destruction. Imagine imagery reminiscent of 9-11 popping up in American entertainment and you can further appreciate the gravity of nuclear explosions in Japanese entertainment. But perhaps literally the biggest Japanese pop culture icon related to the nuclear age is none other than this guy. When we come back, my review and commentary on Godzilla. He spent years pushing the corporate suits, their rules, and their laws to the edge. Wait till you hear what he's like when he makes his own rules. The Don Geronimo Show. Discounted yearly subscriptions still available. Also available in quarterly or monthly packages. And I'll see you there. The Don Geronimo Show. Tomorrow and every Monday through Friday from 3 to 5 Eastern, noon to 2 Pacific, live right here on the Realm Network. I know many of you have family and loved ones still in the city and that you want to help them. Well, this is your chance. You have no idea what's coming and it is going to send us back to the Stone Age. In 1954, just nine years after 200,000 people died as a result of the atomic bombs, the Japanese entertainment studio Toho Company LTD created Godzilla. The franchise has seen this kaiju, or giant monster, as a hero, a villain, or just an amoral force of nature. But regardless of the monster's motivation, Godzilla has always been seen as an allegory about the inherent dangers of nuclear power. It's nuclear, dummy. The S is silent. One thing I've noticed about certain people is that they look for deeper meanings when there really aren't any. 
People insist that The Wizard of Oz is an allegory about American economics and The Yellow Brick Road is about the gold standard, or that The Twelve Days of Christmas is a sort of mnemonic device about different aspects of Christianity. Wrong! Godzilla may have been born in the aftermath of a national disaster, but at its heart, the Godzilla franchise is just a monster destroying buildings. When we try to unnecessarily add meaning to pulp, we just end up looking pretentious. Now, I say this as a podcaster who, just a few episodes ago, referenced stories like Austin Powers while debating constitutional originalism. Ah, that was a great episode. Anyway, yes, Godzilla. The latest American incarnation of the monster was released on May 16th, 2014. I was very much looking forward to seeing this movie in high hopes that it would erase the disappointment from the 1998 Matthew Broderick version. That movie was a critical failure due to a lot of things, but mostly because it slipped in too many jokes that weren't necessary. Oh, and slapstick with newborn monsters? <sighs> but... After 2008's Cloverfield showed the type of kaiju movie done well in the digital age, it wouldn't be long before more such movies would follow. Last year saw Pacific Rim, and this year has Godzilla. This movie is pretty good. The pacing and the effects are fantastic, and the sound design is incredible. The fights between the monsters are punctuated with all the right notes, and the level of destruction is impressive. The movie begins with the destruction of a nuclear power plant, and some might find that insensitive so soon after the disaster at Fukushima. But because Godzilla movies are about nature versus the nuclear age, it was an appropriate use of collapse. Again, remember that the first Godzilla movie came out only nine years after Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I was fortunate enough to see this movie with a crowd that was pumped to see a giant monster destroying buildings and other monsters. Treating the movie as a sort of community experience can be very rewarding, and when cheers erupted when Godzilla roared or used his fire breath, it was exhilarating. Unfortunately, the flaws in this movie are ones that keep coming up in action movies, and I don't know why they still occur. Now, the monsters in this movie are beautifully crafted, but they're shown very sparingly. Instead, the movie maintains its focus on the human element. That would be fine if the performances were good, but with the exception of Brian Cranston, they're mediocre. Everyone seemed to be phoning it in, and it made me want to see more of the monsters instead. As a result, shying away from showing Godzilla and his enemies made it seem like the filmmakers were not confident in their creation. The final act of the movie takes place over a darkened, destroyed city, and the darkness made some of the action tough to make out. Save the dark scenes for thrillers and horror movies. I want my action in the daylight, where the effects can be appreciated. Three out of five stars for Godzilla. Let them fight. That's it for this episode of Art. Please spread the word, and if you haven't already, subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Like the page on Facebook at facebook.com slash artreviews, follow the show on Twitter at artreviews, and don't forget to shop Amazon at artsreviewandcommentary.com. My name is Omar Latiri, and this is Art.
The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network. We got the bomb and that was good Cause we love peace and motherhood Then Russia got the bomb but that's okay Cause the balance of powers maintained that way Who's next? France got the bomb but don't you grieve Cause they're on our side, I believe China got the bomb but have no fears They can't wipe us out for at least five years Who's next? Then Indonesia claimed that they were gonna get one any day South Africa wants two, that's right One for the black and one for the white Who's next? Egypt's gonna get one too Just to use on you know who So Israel's getting tense Wants one in self-defense The Lord's our shepherd says the psalm But just in case We better get a bomb <laughs> Who's the next? Luxembourg is next to go And who knows, maybe Monaco We'll try to stay serene and calm When Alabama gets the bomb Who's next? Who's next? Who's next? Who's next? Who's next?